Hello and welcome to Better Under Pressure. I'm Sarah Milne-Rowe, author of The Shed Method and founder of Coaching Impact. And in this podcast, I talk to leaders from all walks of life about being better under pressure and using pressure for better. I want to explore how we handle pressure in a world that is becoming more and more complex, the impact that that pressure has on our ability to perform at our best and what we do to be better under pressure. I was also very naive because I was full of the belief that I was far too young to lose my arm and not to be able to do stuff. So there is a way, I just have to find it. And it might be a little bit difficult and it might be a little bit painful. And if I fail, I can live with that. But I can't live with not trying. Mm -hmm. If it goes wrong, we still have options. But if we don't try, we won't know. And yes, I might waste two years of my life trying to do something that's impossible, but it's worth a go. Today, I'm talking to Tamsin Addison, a member of the Irish equestrian team for over 10 years now, who's enjoyed international wins on multiple horses, was placed in the top 10 in the last European Championships and became a Paralympian at Tokyo 2021. Starting her career as a psychologist and undertaking a PhD on pain in sport, Tamsin was at the same time diagnosed with parostial sarcoma in her right upper arm. Determined not to let bone cancer hinder her passion for horse riding, Tamsin became the first person in the world to regrow an arm bone. After working in the corporate world for 20 years, she was tempted to ride for her country and didn't look back. She now runs her own business, rehabilitating horses after injury or surgery, and combines that with competing at national and international equestrian events. In our conversation, Tamsin reveals why she changed her phone passcode to a specific number in the future, the mental and physical toll it took to regrow her right arm, and what happened when someone told her that her horse was watching Netflix. Tamsin, how lovely to see you and thank you so much for agreeing to be on Better Under Pressure. That's really kind of you, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Tamsin, as you know, this podcast really explores how people experience pressure and how people work with pressure. And you as a para rider, I think is incredibly interesting for me because I've not had anyone on the podcast with your background before. So could you please start by sharing the first time you experienced pressure? Um, I've always been really good at putting pressure on myself. Um, It started pretty early. I think probably the best example is when I was quite small, probably seven or eight, um, I had a competition and we were away to camp. And the competition was on the very last day. And on the the last night before we finished, there was a disco dance. And it was a really big deal as an eight-year-old. You know, I was really excited about it. And it was marred by the fact I had a competition the next day. Now, I have to put it in perspective. The competition was tiny. It was a really small, insignificant, not important to anyone, little thing. And yet I found myself putting myself to bed early because I wanted to be on good form for the competition the next day, which looking back on it is ridiculous. But I realised then that I was already pressurising myself to to do my best and not to let the side down, even at a young age. So I think it started quite early. But it sounds like it was a good feeling. Um, Well, I went to bed and I felt like I was missing out because I could hear all the music going on. And... I couldn't get to sleep because I wasn't settled and couldn't really concentrate on what was going on. So I was listening to the music and I don't think it put me in a particularly good place, but I had tried to make myself in the best possible frame of mind for competing the next day. Yeah. So that was your first sort of relationship, understanding it and thinking this is how I'm going to deal with it so that I can show up in top form. Yeah. Yeah. And has that continued, Tamsin, for you? Yes. Um, I plan way ahead of my competition. So I know that one of the things I really like in competition is my safe space in the lorry. So the only people who come into the lorry without invitation is my groom and my trainer. And I have a keypad on the outside, which means that they can come in and out as they want. Anybody else has to knock. And that means that I can suss out who's outside before I invite them in because it is my safe space. So planning going to a competition, I will plan all the meals in advance. I've got a massive great big freezer 
And then if I don't want to be social and I don't want to spend time with people, we can eat in the lorry and eat well. Um, and I often don't like the food that's available at shows and you never know what you're going to get. And sometimes it's late and sometimes it's not running or so, and I'm vegetarian or sometimes it's a burger. And so for me, it removes a whole load of stress to know that I've yeah. got a freezer with all the meals planned out. And, you know, I can in the morning, I can say to the guys, right, the menu is this. Which of these things would you like? And then the next night, the menu is this minus whatever we had last night. You can now choose from yeah. what's left. And that, for me, helps me manage. Um, gives me it gives me a, a a space at the end of the day where everything is organised and together. Gosh, it's so interesting. I was talking to um, Leslie Patterson recently for also the podcast, who is you know a five times world champion triathlete as well as the producer uh, of um, All Quiet on the Western Front, and she was saying exactly the same that she has to have make sure that her food is with her, is carried with her because you can never. I mean, for her, her equivalent was not knowing whether what the food was going to be like on set or you know. So, and yeah. she's got a very specific diet that she um follows so that she can be in top form and for her that was exactly the same well i was so paranoid going to tokyo that i was worried about the food that the athletes village is easy because there's everything you would ever want in the canteen there but as a at equestrian we spend most of our day at the equestrian site and the food was pretty rubbish there so i actually took out to tokyo you know those pre-cut lentils and bags right because I realized that at quarantine, that the diet that was produced for athletes was not what I would call a diet. And, you know, I had one freak out one night. I said, I'm really sorry. I'm just not eating chips and curry sauce. Mm. One, one, it's going to leave me feeling stodgy and horrible. And two, mm. I hate curry. Mm -hmm. And I've worked really hard all day. I've ridden the horses. You know, I'm tired. Mm -hmm. I want to eat something nice. I am going to find a way to get something other than what's produced. Um, yeah. Because it's one of those things you can control. And if you yes. can control it, then you, why, why stress about it? Control it and take away with the worry. And then you leave your headspace clear for something else. Yes, that's so helpful. That idea of sort of anticipating what, what environment you're going into and knowing that you've got a plan for it mm. um, reduces what I'm hearing is reducing the stress or the pressure or whatever it is that you're talking about. And, it's, and you know, a lot of what I'm trying to do is to, to help um, to understand what people do so it can be transferred. And I'm just thinking of oh, so many of the leaders that we work with who would just love to have a, a lorry where they could just lock themselves yeah. in and have a keypad as to who can come in and who can't, you know. Uh, so that whole principle. But it doesn't always happen. So uh, at the games, you don't have a lorry. You don't take your lorry to Tokyo. So that ah, safety okay. blanket is removed. Yes. And you, you don't, you, once you're on site, Yes, as a rider, you've got your own tack room. So we sort of had a, a code, which was, if I'm in my tack room and the door's shut, I don't really want to see you. But you can't hide because there are bars. So we threw rugs up over the bars so that it was relatively private. But, you know, if you go to a big championships and you go as a team and all the horses are going in one lorry, you might not have your own space. Right. It sounds like space is incredibly important to you in terms of uh, managing pressure. Would that, would that be right? Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things as a team, we talk about what does the rest of the team need to do to be mindful for each of us when we're competing. And mm. I prefer, if I'm getting ready in the stables, I prefer to have all my teammates out of the stables. I don't want to discuss what we're going to do tomorrow night or what tactics we're going to use for the next test. I want to focus on the job in hand just for an hour mm -hmm. before my test. I just want to talk to my trainer. I want to talk to my groom, but I don't want to be disturbed by tittle-tattle and bits mm -hmm. and pieces. You know, that, that's a really fun part of the competition, catching up with people, but not at that point in time. And right. I think the routine of going into my own space beforehand is important to me. Yes. But the routine is also very important. That Say the control, more on that. I will, the night before a competition, I will sit down and do a plan with my team and we'll agree what time we're feeding in the morning, what time the horse is being prepped. Um, if I've got to wait till day, which is the worst for me, I, you know, if I'm not riding until eight or nine o'clock at night, I've got all day to kick around and I don't feel comfortable going off site to do anything else. Mm. And that's the most anxious time for me. 
but you know we will plan the whole day and i'm going to have lunch at such and such a time and um i will lay out all my clothes ready at such and such a time and i will get ready to go and get on the horse at a particular time and all of that is laid out and i agree with the groom and with joyce and we agree who's going to do what and then when i'm feeling stressed i just revert to plan so right mm. it's 2 30. my mm -hmm. plan says i should now be resting which is, is really difficult but i i do what simon calls enjoy the slumber so when yeah. that's what something mindless on, on my ipad or flick through i don't flick through messages but i might th flick through photographs or i might try and read a book or i might just gaze out of the window or whatever but i know that that's what i should be doing and i don't have to think hard about do i need to do this do i need to do that because it'll say 220 start getting dressed 245 leave mm -hmm. lorry walk to horse and then i speak to the trainer and i speak to my groom and go through the pre-competition checks which will be you know did you put the massage pad on him yes Tamsin, i did you know have, have you done such and such yes i have have you checked there's a number a number on both sides of the saddle cloth yes, yeah. and it's frustrating for them but for me it's i don't have to think when i'm walking in oh god yeah. have i got a number on yeah because i know that all that's been done so yeah. i've just got one thing in my mind yeah all the way through yeah and, and that routine for me is really important sounds it and I'm, you know, I'm already thinking as we're talking, you know, what's the application uh, for someone who may not be in sport? But but what I'm hearing is there's something around real conservation of energy in that process for you. I think it's the same if you're going into a big meeting. So, I, you know, I used to work yeah. in the corporate world. Yeah. Just to say, right, you know, I've got a big meeting with the chairman at two o'clock. At one o'clock, I want to be looking at the notes and refreshing my mind on the points I want to make and how I want to make them. Yeah. And I've got to do something else earlier in the morning, and I will do that. But I know I've left myself enough time mm -hmm. to um, go and get some air, you know, powder my nose, do whatever I have to do, mm -hmm. and then review my notes. And I will be ready for that meeting because I've done all the prep going into it. And I know that there's nothing else I can do. I'm in the right space, and I'll give it my best shot. Yeah. And does the release of the pressure happen when you're making the plan? Um, no, it releases the pressure when I'm feeling tight and, oh, oh goodness, is this done? No, it's done or it's not due to be done until a bit right. later on. So, so it's having I'm, it. It's having it and knowing I'm on track and reverting myself back to the next best course of action is to do what it says there and not change it until whatever time. Otherwise, you end up getting dressed too early and sitting in the sun or sitting in a busy environment, getting stressed, listening to how how brilliant everybody else's performance has been, yeah. rather than walking out and focusing on you and getting on the horse. Yeah. Interesting. What would you say has been the worst pressure you've faced, Tamsin? Undoubtedly going into Tokyo was really tough. Uh, it started out with the will we go, won't we go? And trying to stay completely focused on the job in hand when in my heart of hearts i didn't think we were going to run 2020 mm. um, and you're acting mm. as if and mm. the temptation to not slack off but not do all the prep when you think i don't think we're going to be going mm. it's really it's really easy to say do you know what i'm tired i'm not going to do that extra 10 minutes worth of schooling today I'll just pack it in there. That's good enough. It'll do. Mm. That I found stressful. And then having not competed much in 2020, the selection process for 2021 was really hard mm. because you've done all the work, you've qualified to be there, and now you have to reselect for a competition that mm. you should be going to. And, and you are out of control. And that's hard because you don't necessarily agree with how selection's being run. You don't particularly know the venues. You have, a, you know, the whole run up to, you know, an Olympics is a four year cycle. Yeah. And all of a sudden, that cycle that you've been working to for so long has yeah. changed and you yeah. have to adapt and deal with it. So after Rio, I changed the passcode on my phone. 
to 2020. So every, so every single time I wanted to turn my phone on, it reminded me, this is what you're aiming for. This is what you want to do. So first thing in the morning, when you look at your phone and you put the passcode in, it's like, what am I going to do today to get myself to 2020? And so that that had been going on for such a long period of time that and the plan had been very carefully laid out and really well thought through. And yes, you make some adaptions because things are cancelled and things change, but not not to that scale. And yeah. I found that really, really, really stressful. Yeah. To the point where a couple of times I thought, I don't want to do this. Mm. After all this, I don't want to go. I want the certainty of knowing what's going to happen now. Yeah. So the sort of the lack of decision mm. really ex, um, exacerbated the feeling of pressure. Yes, and yeah, and but- yet your, your decision to put twenty twenty—that's so intriguing. Around you know, just to remind yourself every day that that is that. What did that do to you? Did it literally, even though you didn't have the decision of whether Tokyo is going to happen or not, what did it do? It. it I think. I think part of the problem was that you can't plan anything. So you can't think further ahead because you don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So somebody says, um, you know, oh, I don't know, it's my 40th birthday. Well, I don't know whether I'm going to be here or not. Mm-hmm. And by saying, I'm hoping I'm going to be in Tokyo, you feel that you're being presumptuous. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to tempt fate and I don't want to be presumptuous, but the indecision of not being able to plan anything, it's kind of tough. And, you know, I've got a business to run and all out here needs managing. So I'm thinking, do I bring in a manager to manage while I'm away? Yeah. Um, What do I do with my other horse? Yeah. Yeah. And all these things need planning way in advance of whether you know you're going or not. Yes. So you're sort of running two streams. Yes. And your brain is working on two. Will I go? Won't I go? All the time. Yeah. Yeah. And if you had to say, I mean, you've said one, which is the the code in your phone. Was there anything else that really helped you through that period? Um. Yes, I had a really tricky situation at the beginning of 2020, where. The coach I'd been working with for years, um, we had a difference of opinion, and we decided that it probably wasn't going to work going forward. Which is not your classic strategy for going into a big games, having worked with someone for six years, and decide that now is the time to make such a huge change. Um, and I found that deeply stressful and very worrying. And I phoned somebody who dug me out of a hole ages ago and said, look, I think I'm going to need some help. Um, you know, I'm going to need some help finding a new trainer. Do you know anybody who can cope with me and meet my criteria of how, how often I need to train and support me and come to competitions? Um, and she'd helped me out of a hole literally probably 12 years earlier. And she said, I know a couple of people who live not a million miles from you. I'll give them a call and send you some numbers. Um, but you don't, you sound really wobbly. And I said, I am really wobbly because it's really thrown me. Um, this was not something I'd planned for. Again, it's out of my control. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, that's okay. Why don't, when you get back, I was in Doha at the time. She said, when you get back from Doha, what day will you be back? And when will you start training the horses again? And I said, oh, I don't know, it's the Saturday. She said, well, why don't I come down on the Sunday? We'll do a little bit of training together and we'll see where you are, what you need. And then maybe that will help me to think of someone who will be able to help you on an ongoing basis. And I said, oh. That would be wonderful. Um, and she's still training me. So ah. she lives miles away. But the confidence of having somebody who said, I know you really want to do this and I believe in you. And yeah, mm. we'll, we'll give it a go. And she has to put herself out massively to train me. Yeah. It's, a, it's a really, you know, she lives in Yorkshire. It's a long trip down. Um, you know, she's got her own business to run. She's still competing. She's got lots going on. But the fact that she's invested so much in helping me yeah, it's a real boost in confidence. Yeah, I bet. Oh, I really want to hover over that last comment from Tamsin, as I think it's so often underestimated. Having someone who says, I believe in you. What I witness is that it's often assumed. A leader might say to me, oh yeah, she knows she's doing a great job. Or 
Well, of course I'd delegate anything to him. But to actually tell someone, I believe in you, is powerful. And as Tamsin reminds us, can give us a much needed boost to our confidence. It makes me think of the people in my life who've believed in me and encouraged my courage to keep going when I was fearful or doubting myself. When we're at the top of our game, as Tamsin is, and as many people on this podcast tell me, it can be lonely and people can assume you don't need encouragement or belief. The things we say to each other and to ourselves for that matter can remain as stories and soundtracks deep in our being for years afterwards, both good and bad. Sadly, we tend to remember the bad more than we do the good. So this comment of Tamsin's has left me reflecting on a few questions. Do I actively seek out my cheerleaders when I need them? Or do I pretend all is good and keep my head down and keep striving on? And probably most importantly, who would benefit from hearing me say, I really believe in you? Tamsin, what happened to you at 21? I, I was really active as a kid. And I had a lump on my arm mm-hmm. at 21. And I assumed it, but being active as a kid, I'd fallen out of a tree or um, fallen off my bicycle and broken my arm, not realised and not done anything about it. And I wasn't really very worried. And uh, somebody convinced me to uh, go and see a doctor. And I said, well, okay, whenever. Um, and the next time I happened to be at my GP, I said, you know, I've got this lump. And that turned out to be bone cancer. Um, and uh, I had a number of choices of what I was going to do, um, but only after I fought really hard. I was adamant I wasn't going to lose my arm. I looked at all the different options available, and I decided to regrow it. You decided to regrow your arm? Mm. How did you so, do that? So they took out um, about 14 centimetres between um, just above my elbow to my shoulder. Yeah. And they fitted what's called the Lizarov frame, which um, was designed in Russia and it's made out of bike spokes in Russia. Gosh. And it's one of those big frames. And you, they put a little piece of bone from my leg into my arm yeah, and very close to where the elbow is. And you turn the screws every four hours and that pulls the bone apart very slowly. And it leaves a trail of sticky, wet bone behind it. And you bring the screws all the way up through your arm over the course of years to grow a new bone between where the hole is or where the the cut was on the top. Amazing. So this bit of me is very young. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And and does it, um, it's interesting you didn't, when I asked you that question about pressure, that didn't come up in your answer that moment in your life. Because this, because pressure for me is something that um, you can choose to walk away from. Um, you you can choose to take the lid off the boiling pot and let the water go down. Um, that was there was no choice for me. You know, I, I had to do something about it. Um, uh, I'm desperately ambitious, and I wanted to do a lot of stuff. I was quite young, wasn't really ready to stop doing all the sport I love. So something had to be done. And it wasn't pressure. It, it was extremely painful and very tiring and stressful. Mm-hmm. But pressure for me is different to stress. Mm-hmm. Say more. Stress is um, almost things that you, you can't choose not to deal with. Pressure is something where you put yourself in a situation that puts pressure on you. and you have much more control of doing something about it. Mm-hmm. And pressure comes with physical symptoms. So it comes with butterflies and anxiety and, you know, slightly clammy hands or whatever. But I, I don't mind those physical signs. Mm-hmm. I, don't like, I don't like the mental side of pressure. I find that more tricky. Mm-hmm. therefore my coping strategies are not about the physical stuff very much it's more about the mental stuff right yes there are lots of different things that i can do that put me in the right frame of mind so i know that i have a go-to um, list of tracks on to listen to mm-hmm. which i know will put my head in the right space so and that happens because, like very quickly for you when you do that yeah 
yeah, so, you know, I've got my own bubble in my lorry. Um, nobody's going to critique my choice of music, <laughs> I betide them. Um, you know, so I will use that if I'm feeling that I'm not in the right headspace. I know I have to get myself into the right headspace. And while I'm getting dressed, I might put something on to listen to to get me into the right headspace. Or, yes. heaven forbid, I don't have my trainer with me at a competition. I might well put my ear, earphones in and listen to something. Um, or um, when I'm warming up, I have a headset so that my trainer can talk to me. Okay. I might well um, say to my groom, right, I want you on the other end of the headset so I can ask you questions. Like, yep. how many more before me? Are they running to time? Um, how does this look? Do you think he looks energetic enough? Or, mm. you know, does does it look like um, I'm being accurate on the centre line when I'm practising? And I might say to her, can you stick, you know, some music on in the background so that I've got that to listen to as well as your voice? Gosh. And did any of those techniques that you've just shared there help you when you had, when you were growing your arm? Did you have techniques that you applied to that as well? Um, I don't think tech, I don't think I was sophisticated enough to have techniques. A lot of the time I was very, um, I was with it, but, but not, not in the same way. So I was dopey all the time because I couldn't sleep at night because it hurt so much. And because I was tired, I dozed during the day. Um, I was on a lot of painkillers, which are not good at making your head clear. Um, and not, you know, I wasn't particularly um, analytical or rational in some ways. I did start then listening to books at night mm -hmm. just to help my head, just to focus on something that was likely to help me go to sleep. Mm -hmm. um, and I still do that now. Um, I never go to sleep without listening to something. Mm -hmm. I suppose what I'm hearing in that story about your arm, interesting you said it, it you know, it, it, it wasn't pressure. It was something that was out of my control. So therefore it, 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 it was a different response that you gave to it. But nevertheless, I'm hearing a huge determination in that story that you were going to yeah. carry on riding irrespective. You know, it, it was not, it was not going to stop you. No, I mean, the, being adamant that I wanted to ride was really important. So I had lots of options. They could have, um, they, they'd never taken that much bone out before, so they didn't really know what to do. And when I said keeping the arm is absolutely imperative, it is not an option. We are going to find a way. Um, you know, I'm quite happy to go abroad. If I have to go to the States to sort it out, I will do. I happen to be in Ireland, and um, with all the troubles, they have a good history of mending bones. And they had an orthopedics mm. conference. And we sat in the departure lounge with, I don't know, something like 20 or 30 orthopedic surgeons with all my x-rays pinned to the windows. And it, I can't believe we did it, really. So we were in the lounge in the airport with all these x-rays on the windows, having a discussion about, well, we could do this and we could do that. And we looked at putting a coral in. But the feeling was that the bone would only grow so far into the coral. So the two ends would be stable, but then I'd probably snap the stuff in the middle. Right. Um, and we looked at an allograph, which is um, a, a dead bone. But again, that would probably snap in the middle. And I mm -hmm. kept saying, it's got to be strong. I've got to, if, you know, if I'm going to ride a horse, it's got, it's got to work. So I was hugely determined. Yeah. Um, arrogant yeah. as well. I am going to do this. Yes. Well, arrogance got some, well, arrogance got such a, a, an interesting connotation to it, hasn't it? Versus determined. <laughs> but but I suppose I was also very naive because I was full of um, the belief that I was far too young to lose my arm and not to be able to do stuff. So there is a way. I just have to find it, and it might be a little bit difficult, and it might be a little bit painful. But and if I fail, I can live with that. But I can't live with not trying. Mm -hmm. so if it goes wrong, we still have options. But if we don't try, we won't know. And yes, I might waste two years of my life trying to do something that's impossible, but it's worth a go. Mm. And has it stopped you in any way? Um, there are a few things that I can't do. Um, two main ones. One is to change a light bulb because you need both hands above your head. And you can't do it in your lap, otherwise your, your top half is normally in the ceiling. So that's a bit tricky. 
And the other thing I can't do very easily is to carry a tray of drinks. Mm-hmm. Um, but my husband says that shouldn't stop me going to the bar and buying the tray of drinks and getting somebody else to carry it. Um, <laughs> but I can find a way to do almost everything. Oh, yeah. Amazing. You you learn different adaption techniques. So, for example, in my kitchen, um, you wouldn't know if you look, walked into my kitchen, but there are counters at, at different heights. So I've got one, one round at the end that's much higher that I use for writing on or for fine tasks that my arm needs to be up for. Mm. I have a massive, great, big, thick butcher's chopping board because it aesthetically looks nice, but it also raises the yeah. height of a normal kitchen counter by about two inches, which makes chopping much easier for me. Yep. And then everything else is at normal height. And it means between those three heights, I can do everything. And mm. the work surfaces are granite deliberately, because then if I take something hot out of the oven, I can put a... a um, uh, oven glove over my knee, slide it from the oven onto my knee, lift my knee up, and then push it onto ah, the okay. the top without dropping it. So if I lift a big lasagna out of the oven or whatever, I don't really want to throw it on the floor, which might happen. So then I, I found a way of just balancing it on my leg, and and then it's stable. Mm-hmm. This arm gives way, so I I can do almost everything. There's very few things that I can't do. Amazing, great story. So how that's been so helpful hearing the sort of strategies you apply to yourself in terms of pressure moments and planning seems to be a huge sort of contender in that. How do you manage other people's pressure? Because presumably either in your business or, you know, pre-competition, there's pressure that builds for others around you. And this is a typical question that we get asked a lot is, um, how do I, you know, I, to me, it's not a pressure situation, but for three people I'm working with, it, it is. And, yep. you know, they're spiraling in this way and I'm not. Um, I'm quite a direct person. So mm-hmm. it's, it wouldn't be unheard of for me to say, you look like you're having a bit of a hard time there. Is there anything I can do to help? Whether that make everybody else go away or mm-hmm. actually physically do something. Or would you like somebody just on standby that can help you if something goes wrong or you've forgotten something? Just a gopher. Mm. Yeah. Or you know, sometimes one of my teammates will say, I'm really worried that if that, that door slams while I'm at the top end of the arena, the horse will spook. Mm-hmm. I say, don't worry, it won't slam. I think it might get locked and the key might disappear for 10 minutes while you're competing. Or I'll put my foot against it. Or I'll stand there and nobody will come through when you're at the top end of the arena. So I'm I'm happy to help people, but what I try to do is to recognise the warning signs for them that they're pressured. Yeah. And I know that some of my teammates um, just want me to go away at that point. They just want everybody away from them. There are others that want an extra pair of hands. Mm-hmm. And if you've got good teammates, they should know. Mm-hmm. Um, you should know what each other's stress reactions are so that you can make a judgment. Yes, and presumably you've spent some time really understanding that with your team. Yeah, well, we, you're on the circuit, so you go to the same competitions with them. Um, so you get to know them really quite well. Yeah. Mind you, that's different from actually asking, don't you think? I think I we, mean, when I'm thinking about teams, people make assumptions about it. Um, but what I'm loving about this story is that it's an important part of being a strong competitive team is to understand um, what their conditions for success are so that pressure becomes something that's a strong force and a useful force rather than something that doesn't prepare you well. So we do have sessions at, at the beginning of big championships where we'll say, this is what I need from the rest of you. This is uh-huh. what I want. This is what I want you to do. But most of the time we know most of that anyway. It, for me, it's in the, the quieter moments when somebody says, um, I don't know, they see that Joyce Joyce is training me and it's early and they just bring her a cup of tea because they know that she's going to drink tea. She, they know it's going to be strong. They know she doesn't want coffee, but she would probably, you know, and she's talking to me all the time, coaching me, and that might be for an hour and a half or whatever, that she might actually quite like a cup of tea while she's doing that. Mm-hmm. that that's a really lovely gesture and it's it feels really good for me when I'm riding. I think, oh, somebody's looked after her. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And do you foresee 
any pressure ahead, Tamsin, that is going to enable you to grow even more? Um, the immediate pressure I see is um, the pressure of lack of staff. So I'm three staff down mm-hmm. um, and I will cope. We always do cope. But that doesn't always leave me with enough time to plan and put me in the best frame of mind for my competition. Mm-hmm. So at some point, I have to be properly selfish and say, I'm really sorry, guys. I'm just going to leave you, you know, in mm-hmm. in a big hole because I really have to leave the night before for a competition. And I know that leaves you really short-stuffed and I'm really sorry. But I've got to be selfish if mm-hmm. I want to have any hope of doing this. And I'm already on the back foot because I should have been prepping for days beforehand. Um, so that is a pressure that I've got to manage better this summer. Okay. Personally, I've always been, I've not had, I've, I've been slightly apprehensive about horses, if I'm uh, speaking candidly to you, Tamsin. It's never been a love of my life. I've never, mm-hmm. I, I sort of admire them. And I would love to have a relationship, a close relationship, because they look so, some of them are, you know, you feel like, my gosh, you're so majestic and beautiful to look at tell me about this relationship with the horse what significance does that play in terms of your ability to stay on the right side of pressure horses are um mostly pretty generous and if they're good at competition they enjoy it too but we have a responsibility to make it fun for them and you can't lose your temper and you have to be firm and fair. You can say sorry, but it's not the same relationship as you have with a human. So they rely on us and they have to trust us. You know, goodness sake, to put a horse onto a plane and fly it to the other side of the world to compete, yeah. put it into a stable it's never never seen before. It doesn't know how long it's going to be there. It doesn't know whether it's been sold. It doesn't know whether it's going home again. It doesn't know whether it's going to have to compete today, tomorrow, next week, three mm. days, one day. It's got no idea. So there has to be a lot of trust there. The relationship, and when you describe the elegance and the majesty of it, that's mm. true for all of about seven and a half minutes when you're in the arena. The rest of the time, it's not glamorous. It's hard work. Um, if you're in a hot country, it's very sweaty. If you're in a cold country, it's very cold. You're often wet and muddy. And mm. the horse relies on you through all of that, for you to provide the right things for it and um, to do your best for it. And you ask the horse to do the best he can for you when you're competing. And so the relationship is one of understanding and trust. And there are times when they trust you and you let them down and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah, because there's so many um, courses or, you know, the horse whisper, you know, when you think about leadership, I hear a lot about people who, who go and spend some time with horses and how horses can very quickly pick up or not, you know, the sort of the relationship, the power, the sense of confidence actually in that leader or not. And I've always been very intrigued by that. And, and what you're just describing is that that sense of give and take between the two of you. So the way I think about it is I have to be alpha horse. I am the executive. I am making the decisions. But he has to want to follow. Mm-hmm. And he want, has to want to be led. Because actually, if he doesn't want to go, I'm not going to make him go anywhere. He's like six times my size. There yeah. is no way in the world... If he doesn't want to do it, I am going to be able to make him do it. He has to trust me. And there has to be mutual respect. So part of that respect is he's not allowed to push push me around. He's not allowed to rub his head on my arm because it really hurts. Mm-hmm. But they know. They know how you're feeling. They know when they've won. I'm sure they can feel it. Or when you're really pleased with them, there's a big difference between, you know, coming out of a test and throwing your arms around the horse, burying your nose in its sweaty, nasty um, neck, you know, and being delighted and, you know, a pat on the neck. Yeah. And they know when they've been naughty too. They know when they've gone into the arena and said, oh, I really don't feel like it today. And the hind leg comes out and they're very expressive with, with how they explain how they feel about things. Yes. So, I mean, Joy said to me last week, she said, um, 
I have a feeling he's sticking his two ears up at you. <laughs> I thought, yes, he is. He has he has an opinion about what we're trying to do or how I'm trying to do it. I need to find another way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's just so the same with humans, isn't it? Except they've got the added way of they speak to you. <laughs> I think it was Winston Churchill who said the best thing for the inside of a man is the outside of a horse. Mm. Um, and there's a lot to be said for that. And I know that, you know, I, I went to a competition many years ago and I was feeling pretty confident and we looked pretty good. And um, I was feeling pretty smart and it was outdoors and we were jumping. And I was in the collecting ring and I put in a particularly good jump over a particularly large fence. I was feeling pretty smart. And uh, it came round to, to just before the arena. And the horse obviously knew that I was feeling pretty good and pretty, pretty smart. And uh, just put his head down, dropped his shoulder and dumped me in the biggest puddle, known to man, in front of, you know, an Olympic gold medalist. And I was there sitting in a puddle thinking, you know, so much for the white breeches and the beautiful black jacket and, you know, kind of feeling pretty trim. And, you know, here we go. <laughs> you know, I, I now feel like, you know, the, the six-year-old that's been dragged through the hedge by the farewell pony. And they, horses are great levelers. As soon as you yeah. you stop remembering that they are part of the, the, the picture and getting ahead of yourself, they put you straight back in your face. Yeah. But, they, but they're, they're also lovely to you when you're feeling a bit down. You know, they know. Yeah. A soft nose in your neck or whatever. Wouldn't be without them. No, I can hear that. So if there were two things... Tamsin, that you would pay forward to anyone listening this to this podcast who wants to be better under pressure, mm -hmm. what would you pass forward to them? I believe that um, pressure, there's, there's a pressure model called the catastrophe model, which mm -hmm. um, when I was a sports psychologist, we used to do a bit with, I'm sure it's very dated now and I'm sure it's been updated, but for me it works. And it's about the pressure builds and builds and builds. And actually, we all need some pressure to be at our best. And then you get to a point where it actually becomes too much and your performance drops off. And for me, that cusp or that, that pyramid is really pointy. So it's only a little thing that takes me from being doing really well and, uh, and coping really well with the pressure and focusing to everything going out of the window. So I think understanding the shape of your pyramid, triggers at the top of the pyramid are very important, if that makes sense. Because then you know you're coming up to the top and you know that you've got to make sure that nothing else lands on the plate because there's no more capacity to deal with it. Yeah. That's really useful image, actually. And it's made me think, you know, how, how people actually, what the shape of their pressure is. And whether some people, you know, if you've got a slow curve, <laughs> yeah. it feels much more possible to stay in control of it. But the, the sort of peak and then the sudden drop has a whole different impact, doesn't it? Do you see when that's happening for you, Tamsin? I do, I do now, yes. It's taken right. me a long time, but I do now. So I know that I become flitty. So I start doing one thing and then I start on another because mentally my head's moved right. I'm doing this, but I need to do that next. And I ha and then I have to bring myself back to my routine or whatever and say, no, the time for doing the later thing is a little bit further on. First of all, do what you're supposed to be doing and go back to your routine. Yes. Um, Did you call it flitty? Yes. Flitty. Yeah. Flitty. Flittering around. I, you know, yes. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'll start getting my clothes ready and my hat out and make sure that my I've got the right spurs. And then I'll decide all of a sudden that I need to, need to listen to my uh, music for my routine. When I've only got half my stuff out, and then I'll decide that um, oh, I better check that my water bottle's full. Right, so I start making up a, a drink to take with me to warm up, um, and um, then my phone bings, and I decide to, I'm going to go and you know make sure that the whole competition hasn't been cancelled. Not that that's likely, but you know I'll just check. You know, yes. And, and I'm not actually focusing on one thing or completing any task properly. I'm yeah. just. So, so that happens, and I also become um, uh, intolerant of other people. So, I don't know, I get it. My phone bings and I go and look at it, and it's a client, not uh, unreasonably, asking me if I'll teach them next Tuesday afternoon. And I feel really indignant. For goodness sake, I'm about to compete. What do you mean? Tell me you have a lesson <laughs> next Tuesday afternoon, which is not unreasonable. They don't know that I'm 
in the arena <laughs> in, a, in an hour and a bit. They're just asking for a lesson, yeah. you know. But, yeah. but my space is, you know, I'm, everybody else is beck and call 24-7. I just want an hour before I compete. Not that I've announced to the world that that hour is sacrosanct. And they've only sent a message, so I could have not read it. Yes. But, I, but my mental reaction is, is it's totally outrageous. Yeah. Their behaviour isn't. I know that. Yeah. But that's not how I feel about it. I yes. feel, for goodness sake, give me the space I need right now. Yes. So both of those are very clear warning signs to me. That... I'm sure they are. And one that I can definitely relate to. <laughs> Knowing our warning signs is so key in choosing how we respond to pressure. I love the idea that Tamsin talks about here, understanding the shape of your pressure pyramid and how easily pressure can turn from a flourishing force, allowing us to grow and learn into a depleting force draining our capacity to deal with it, quickly taking us from our oh yes zone into our oh hell zone. Becoming acutely aware of the first signs is key because then we can build our personal routines or rituals that help us to avoid tipping over into negative pressure or at least navigating a way out of it. Here are a few ways that Tamsin's mentioned so far that make a difference to how she sets herself up for success. Firstly, having her own space this is hard for a lot of people I work with at the moment, creating quiet thinking space, stepping away from interruptions and noise. We may not all have a trailer with a keypad that only a few people know the combination to, but there are ways we can all create space if we choose to. A bench in a park, a walk around the block, an empty meeting room. Know what environment makes a difference for you to create your space. Secondly, planning her food. Tamsin's the second person on this podcast who's mentioned the rigour of planning what she eats and when. If you know that eating specific food makes a measurable difference to your energy, why would you compromise that if it's within your control? Thirdly, I love her mantra, enjoy the slumber. This reminds me of what neuroscientist David Rock calls downtime. Never underestimate the value of downtime, which is tricky in a world where we're seduced into being on all the time. Rock describes this downtime as anything non-goal focused, reading, a mundane task like washing the dishes, or just literally sitting down for some time on the couch, zoning out. This allows our minds to wander and reflect, giving our brain time to recover, allowing space for the unconscious connections to come to the surface, to solve complex problems. I remember Anna Rafferty in episode seven, mentioning how she would download her problem into a voice message to herself and then go and bake a cake. And finally, creating a daily positive trigger. In Tamsin's case, changing the passcode on her phone to 2020 to create a daily prompt to boost the motivation to keep training for the Olympics despite the uncertainty. So many ways to prevent herself from tipping over into unhealthy pressure. And of course, we don't all need that many, but if we can work out what does that for us, it's really valuable to build into a habit so that we can stay better under pressure. What would be your second pass forward, Tamsin? Um, the second one has to be um, putting it in perspective because actually what I do is the be-all and end-all of my world, particularly for that month or that year or whatever. This competition is really important. And yet I know that if I look back three years, I can't remember which was the most important competition. So I have to keep it in perspective. and. Joyce says two things to me, which um, remind me that I have to keep things in perspective. Um, especially when I'm working in and I can't get something right and we've tried it three or four times and it's still not working. She'll say, Tamsin, it's only a game. And she's right, it is only a game. And there are lots of people with far more um, pressing things than whether my right half pass is going to be, you know, a flowing, beautiful, accurate, endy, work of art or whether I number across the arena and end up at E by luck or by hook or by crook. Yeah. And the second thing she says, which tells me that I really do need to um you know think about getting into perspective is um are you having fun yet? <laughs> Great question. <laughs> are you having fun yet? So I sort of say, no not really. She said, I didn't think so. And then she'll say something like and that's not much fun for us either. And I'm like, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> right. Um, but she, she's, 
she's got a very good handle on how to um how, how to deal with that she has a great tone of phrase down the the headset and things you know she she will sometimes say things like um oh um the pair of you look like it's, you're on a tandem and you're on the front of the tandem steering and pedaling like mad and sweating buckets and worrying about the line that you're going down and the strategy of the other people on the bikes next door to you and your horse is sat on the back of the tandem with his feet up and he's what he's watching netflix and smoking a fag do you think you ought to join in and play nicely together and put a bit more joint effort in and that will make me smile i think yeah this is the game and if it's not fun for my team and that includes the horse yes he's not going to do his best either no so that's such a good analogy yeah trying to keep the perspective of you know even the olympics is only a game yes mm-hmm. it's an important one and yes no, don't get me wrong. It's, it is serious, and I, I do try really hard, but it is only a game. Yeah. You know? And everybody who cares deeply about me will still care about me, whether you know I go in and forget the test or not. And they will be disappointed for me, not with me. Yeah. And the people who don't feel like that probably shouldn't matter to me. Wow, that's 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 very helpful. And actually, it's made me think, as you've just been sharing that story, particularly the, the analogy of your horse sitting up with, with her feet up and not really caring about, about the uh, competition. Well, horses, don't, horses don't have ambition. They don't wake up in the morning and go, you know what, I really want to go to Tokyo 2020. They wake up and go, God, I hope it's, we're going to be going out soon because it's really nice weather and I'm really hungry and that grass looks really good. Oh, she's got the saddle and bridle. That's a shame. <laughs> <laughs> but you know they, they don't have ambition it's all self it all comes from us yes Tamsin thank you so so much what an interesting conversation I've learned a lot through this thank you thank you it's, it's been a delight thank you so much for listening to this episode of Better Under Pressure with me Sarah Milne if you enjoyed it please do subscribe and let us know what you found useful or what you'd like to know more about Our aim is to share as many examples as possible of what people do to manage pressure for better and turn it into a positive relationship. If you're interested in any of the practices mentioned, check out my book, The Shed Method, or alternatively, you can find us at Coaching Impact or me on LinkedIn and Instagram. I'm now going to follow my own advice and, like Tamsin, be properly selfish. I'm going to take August off off, and I hope many of you can too. I look forward to talking to more interesting people in September to find out how they are better under pressure. Better Under Pressure was produced by the Fab team at Smart Cookie Media. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye.